This is a RomyCast. This podcast was recorded in June of 2021. Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Hey, what? Oh, Can we just have a little less guitar in the earphones? Oh, that's all right. The bit that John finally got just after that, and we were both of a do what we wanted to do. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. We will be taking a stroll along the cast iron shore and peeling off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest discussing their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. The podcast website is romycast.com. That is romycast, R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we've done so far. This is the fourth episode of Series 2. You can find the first three episodes of this series, as well as all 15 episodes of Series 1. Also, if you see fit, could you please make a donation to support keeping the show commercial-free? Any donation is much appreciated, and your donation, I can assure you, goes towards offsetting the costs of the show, hosting, advertising, and so on. It's a labor of love for me, and if you enjoy the show, please consider a donation to support the show. Maybe just a couple of dollars per episode. It's not much. Just click on the donate button on the website if you'd like to donate. And along those lines, big shout outs to Ernie Pinn and David Ellenbass for their donations last week towards Series 2. Thanks for your support. I really appreciate it. Hey, I'll give you a shout out as well if you make a donation. Just visit the website romicast.com. Uh, Also, if you don't already, please subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. And if you could, if you haven't already, please do leave a positive review or rating. Those things really do help along. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle the underscore RomyCast. That is the underscore RomyCast. That is also the best way to get in touch or comment on any of the episodes. Uh, You can also go to the website if you want to send me a note, just to follow the instructions when you're there. Uh, A programming note here, this episode is part two of our two-part look at the White Album. This episode will concentrate on sides three and four. If you haven't already, go back and listen to part one with singer-songwriter and guitar player Tara Lightfoot talking about sides one and two of the 1968 Beatles classic. My guest today for part two is a returning guest, a talented songwriter and musician and graphic artist, Jane Gowan. Uh, Jane 
Jane is an indie artist, and she's been around the music scene for a number of years. She was in Vancouver, where she put together and played in a band called Spy Girl, and for the last several years in Toronto with her band The Real Shade. Her latest project is a lovely single called Waiting for Good News. Uh, She does that with Rio Static singer Tim Vesley, and you can find that song and work from Spy Girl as well and The Real Shade wherever it is that you stream your music. You can visit therealshade.com to find out information on the band, her collaboration with Tim Vesley, and also info on any of The Real Shade's albums. They also have a YouTube channel, and you can find them on SoundCloud. The band's Twitter handle is Real Shade Music. Jane's Twitter handle is Jane Gowan. Insta is The Real Shade Band. And Jane is Jane Gowan. So that's all the socials covered there. So uh, it gives me a chance now to turn my attention uh, to you, Jane Gowan, songwriter, musician, returning champion. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about the Beatles. It's great to be here, Paul. Thanks for having me back. Hey, it's, uh, you have the great guests back, you know, that's how, that's how it works all the time. So uh, let's catch up, first of all, on uh, the uh, dystopian pandemic we've all been living in. How has that affected you as a musician? I mean, I'm, <laughs> I think I know the answer. Well, just coming here today, I was realizing, realizing how exciting it is just to walk to a gig carrying a microphone stand because that's what I did coming here. So I thought, you know, I'm really missing playing now. At, at first it was great because I'm working on a new album and things like that, but, it, you know, the desire to play with my bandmates and play live is definitely uh, catching up to me. And Fantastic I'm, new single out, uh, which we will talk about a little bit later on, Waiting for Good News. Love it. Uh, we'll talk about that. But okay. any plans for an album and maybe when we can do it again, some playing live somewhere? Definitely an album, hopefully to release in late late summer, early fall. And I think it's time now to start booking gigs. You know, it's been been long enough and I'm noticing people are starting to book gigs in October, November, December. Uh, so maybe it's time. I have to get on that. <laughs> how did you? How did you do the single? Did you all get together in the studio, sort of normal style, or was it? I'll do my guitar part and I'll send the file over to Tim's place and he'll lay down. How did you do it? There was a lot of that. Um, we do. It's just Tim and I on the album, and, and Don Kerr, drummer uh, extraordinaire. So mostly, I would go into. We did it at the woodshed. Um, and we started a while back, so we were, it was before the pandemic got really bad, so we were in the woodshed, just the two of us, and I would lay down the piano part, and then Tim did almost everything on the single, and then I just uh, overdubbed some vocals, and there we go, you know, there you have it. So he did the majority of the heavy lifting on that song. And Tim, by the way, is Tim Vesley, uh, he of the Rio Statics, uh, immensely talented guy who we'll talk about a little bit later on. And just FYI, dear listener, uh, you might be able to pick this up just in the acoustics, but this is a Walrus Was Paul First. I launched series one during the pandemic, so everything was done over Zoom. And this is a first. Jane and I are actually sitting in the same room, uh, I guess we're socially distanced, but we're, we're, we're sitting here in the same room, so this is pretty cool. It's very exciting, and you know, Paul's got a beautiful house, and he made me a really nice cup of coffee. 
with a biscotti on the side. Well, here at uh, here at Romy Cast HQ, we don't we don't do anything in uh, in half measures. So you are going to talk about you are taking the baton uh, figuratively from uh, fellow musician Tara Lightfoot, who did sides one and two of the White Album. You are doing sides three and four. What are your earliest memories of the White Album? How did you come to it? I was thinking about that. I mean, actually, what I remember in recent times, probably, you know, around 20 years ago, I guess that's recent in my life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we used to say everything's 10 years ago, now everything's 20 years ago. So there was a time, and I had this on cassette, so that should age it. Um, And I would play it in my minivan, Paul. And I had the White Album, I think I listened to it exclusively probably for about six months in in my car. So that's the time when the the White Album really sunk in. And it kind of became, I think, one of, you know, probably my favorite Beatles album. And I was thinking, you know, you're driving along and all, you know, you you stop listening to the music for a while um, and you pay attention to driving. And then you come back and you're in a totally different musical universe all all of a sudden. And uh, it just, it's it's an addictive album for sure. It's, uh, it's, you know, an incredible record and it's, the the scope of material on it now has has made it such that uh, some artists you will say that's their white album. I, I, I'm thinking of Paul Weller has an album called Twenty Two Dreams, and I look at that and I go, that's Paul Weller's white album, just because the the scope and the variation in material is just so sweeping. Everything from rock to uh, to finger picking, folk uh, to psychedelic, like it just it covers it all. It's an amazing record. Yeah, it's so diverse, and um, you know, it's like it's 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 almost like um, a collage, really, of, of musical sounds. It's a it's a booyah bass, I guess, and uh, you can just pick and choose. You could, depending on what mood you're in, you could just listen to certain tracks and leave all the others, or you might want to go dark, you might want to go light. It's really it's really remarkable. Famously, the Beatles were going to call it uh, a doll's house, oh. uh, and uh, that would have been such a perfect title because. It's almost what it's like as you wander around and you go into different rooms and each room has a different feel to it and a different texture. Uh, They later found out the title was already taken. So Mm. uh, they ended up just going with The Beatles. But yeah, it's it's very much like that. I think of it in the same terms where you wander in and, oh, this is, we got this, you know, rocker to kick it off. If you talk about side one with back in the USSR and then we go into this Chet Aikens sort of finger picking Dear Prudence and then we go into psychic compression with glass onion and it just it mm-hmm. changes with every track definitely and I guess at the studio they were in three separate studios at some time and George Martin had to kind of travel between and check in on people here and there so it's almost like a doll's house that they were working in yeah and it, it, it's weird I mean we'll talk about that a little bit George Martin's role on the record uh, he was becoming fed up with them the sessions were by all accounts at times fairly acrimonious uh, and at times they turned into you know essentially a backing band for whoever it was that was doing the track but still uh, in the end just a, an amazing record uh, so let me give you a little bit of context and covering some of the bases that I did with Tara uh, dear listener but if you if you didn't if you want go back and listen to that podcast before you listen to this one if you want to hear you know sides one and two followed by three and four but uh, just a, a little bit of context before we dive into it so the album was the ninth studio album and only double album by the 
the Beatles and was released on the 22nd of November in the UK, five years to the day that they had released their second album, With the Beatles. So just let that sink in for a second. What they were doing on With the Beatles, five years later, this is what they're releasing. Uh, that is quite a, uh, an artistic furrow that had been plowed. Uh, it was released the 25th of November here in Canada and in the USA. Debuted at number one in the UK uh, and was... Number one for eight weeks, including seven straight weeks, was on the chart for 24 weeks. In Canada, the album debuted on the RPM chart at number 11 on December the 9th. It hit number one on the next edition of the RPM chart on December 23rd and remained the number one album until March 17th. Hmm. What a run in Canada. Also great success in the United States, debuted at number 11. A couple of weeks and it topped the charts and then it spent nine weeks in the top spot. Uh, Bit of trivia for Canadians. Abbey Road came out in late 1969 and was number one for nine weeks. So in 1969 in Canada, the Beatles had the number one album on the RPM chart for 21 of the 52 weeks of the year between wow. uh, the White Album, Yellow Submarine, and then Abbey Road. As per chartmasters.org, as of 2015, so a few years ago and before the anniversary issue of the White Album came out, global sales of the White Album, 19 million, putting it at number three on the Beatles' original catalog sales behind Sgt. Pepper's at number two with 24.8 million and ahead of Rubber Soul with 14.4. It is being streamed, the White Album, on Spotify, 169.7 million times. The most streamed track is Blackbird, mm-hmm. 28.5 million streams Wow! for that. Not too shabby. Not bad. Mm. So let's go through what the Beatles world was like at the time. So they entered 1968 off the back of one of their first artistic failures, or at least as far as most people were concerned. That was the Magical Mystery Tour movie. Uh, They started shooting a movie in early September, shot the bulk of it by the end of that month. Uh, The film premiered on BBC TV on Boxing Day 1967 in glorious black and white. 25 million people watched it. It was roundly slated in the British press. Paul McCartney went on the David Frost show the following day, the 27th, to answer questions about the lambasting that British TV critics had given the Beatles over the project. Now, that said, the music was brilliant. Uh, The Magical Mystery Tour double EP came out in uh, the UK, and it was an album that came out in Canada and the US. Huge seller, uh, well over 10 million sales and counting. But still, 1967, an amazing year. Uh, You had the release of Sgt. Pepper's and the Magical Mystery Mystery Tour EP, Single Strawberry Fields Forever, Penny Lane, All You Need Is Love, Baby You're a Rich Man, Hello Goodbye, I Am the Walrus. You also appear on the world's first global satellite broadcast singing All You Need Is Love and shoot and release an hour-long movie. Not bad for a year's work. Yeah, good work. So we get to 1968. What next? Well, for a start, they decide to form their own record label publishing company, electronics company, clothing retailer, Apple, the name of the company. And in January 1968, Beatles Limited officially changed its name to Apple Corps Limited uh, and registered the Apple trademark around the world. In February of 68, they traveled to Rishikesh, which is key in our story. That's in India to take part in a meditation course at Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's Retreat. George and Patty Harrison, her sister Jenny, John and Cynthia Lennon, 
Paul McCartney and Jane Asher, Ringo and his wife, Maureen, they all show up. Uh, Donovan was there as well. Mike Love from the Beach Boys, Mia Farrow and her sister, Prudence. Ringo was the first to leave. Wasn't having a good time. McCartney left shortly afterwards. Lennon and Harrison uh, left eventually after a loss of faith in uh, the Maharishi, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. So towards the end of May 1968, they're back and all four gather at Kinfons, which is George Harrison's Esher bungalow, to record demo versions of their recent compositions. They record at least 23 songs, seven of which were subsequently released on 1996's Anthology 3. It became clear that they had more than enough to fill both sides of an LP and plans for the Beatles' first double album were put into place. So it was in that spirit on May the 30th of 1968 that they walked into EMI Studio in London to start work on what would become known as the White Album. The first song they worked on was Revolution, Uh, appearing on the album as Revolution 1, and they also laid down material that would eventually turn into the Revolution 9 sound collage. So, Jane, the White Album is in places very lo-fi sounding. Uh, Think of happiness as a warm gun, why don't we do it in the road, long, long, long. Your latest single, which we touched on earlier, with Rio Static's Tim Vesley on lead vocal, Waiting for Good News, has a very polished, to my ears, Nashville kind of vibe to it. That's just to my ears. Tell me about that single. Was that the sound you were going for? Afternoon is overcast, evening's golden blue, skies and night fall. question um i don't think necessarily we were going for any particular sound i think what happens sometimes with the way that tim and i work together is i'll bring the song and i don't try to impose too much of what i hear on the song we don't really talk about this is the way this song should be this is the way the style should be this is what we think it is mostly i just let him kind of run with it so Maybe that song lent itself to that. There might, and this album that it's part of called String of Lights is a piano-based album, so it, t- it tends to lend itself to a, more, a smoother sound, I think, than something that's guitar-based. Um, and I think Tim's just really good at, good at getting smooth sounds. Like he's, he's not necessarily that way inclined per se, but... Um, I guess the arrangement just went that way. And it is, it's sort of a, it's got a sweeter tone to it than some of the other things I've written in the past. Uh, it, it's, it's your right, the song? Yeah, I wrote it, the song and he, he sings it. A lot of angst in the song that I hear. We're all, we're all waiting for something. You know, good, that's how it sounds to me. Well, it's, it's based, it was inspired by um, Miriam Tave's book, All My Puny Sorrows is the name of the book. And, um, Fantastic book, very, very sad. It's about a, a relationship between two sisters, one of whom um, wants to leave 
the world. So it's it's a very it's a it's a sad song, but also it's about love and hope and you know, I guess eternity in a way. So it covers a lot of those more melancholy topics. Um, yeah, and so there is a push and pull because in the book. This, the one sister is wanting so badly for her sister to stay, and the other sister is wanting so badly to leave. The song's called Waiting for Good News, uh, and you can find it wherever you stream your music. Lovely song, and again, I, I, I hear some angst in it, and <laughs> Tim does a lovely vocal. Uh, and uh, I believe that's you on the background vocals. That's me on the uh, background okay, yeah. vocals. It's, it's, but uh, yeah, see, what I bolted onto it uh-huh. uh, was Pandemic. We're all waiting to, yes. to get to come out of this tunnel we've been in for the last better part of, of two years. That's what I bolted on to. Well, it. there is that for sure. I mean, I think recording it during the pandemic was probably the right time to record this song. I wrote it be, slightly before. I started it at, at Banff, at the Banff Center. Um, so that's where I got inspired to write it. But then soon after the pandemic hit, you know, a few months after we were into it. So yeah, it, it, it definitely took on a more melancholy nature after that. Well, let's uh, pull the album out of the jacket and we'll start with side three, cut one, which is anything but a melancholy (laughs) song. It is The Beatles' Birthday. Yeah, actually just on the way down here, I was walking and uh, thinking about this song and then there was a big, huge sign on someone's lawn that said, happy birthday, 80th birthday. And they had all these lawn beer signs and everything on the lawn. I just thought, well, that's perfect. Very well themed. Um, well, it's blues. It's blues. And I love the way this just, you know, kicks off side three. Um, and, I, you know, apparently it was written and recorded all in the same evening. And it had, has that kind of jam, let's just go for it kind of feel to it, which is great. And, you know, good sort of McCartney positivity, I suppose you could say. Um, and, you know, reminiscent of that classic American 1950s pop, like Elvis Presley, you know, uh, Buddy Holly, Little Richard, Everly Brothers kind of thing. So, you know, it's a great starting point, I think, for side three. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the inspiration. Uh, here's a quote from Paul McCartney. Uh, what happened was, The Girl Can't Help It was on television. That's an old rock film with Little Richard and Fats Domino and Eddie Cochran and a few others, Gene Vincent. And we wanted to see it. So we started recording at five o'clock and we said, we'll do something, just do a backing track. We'll make up a backing track. So we kept it very simple, 12 bar blues kind of thing. We stuck in a few bits here and there in it with no idea what the song was or what was going to go on top of it. We just said, okay, 12 bars in A, we'll change to D, I'm going to do a few beats in C, and we really just did it like that, a random thing. Then we came back here to my house and watched The Girl Can't Help It. Then we went back to the studio again and made up some words to go with it all. So this song is just made up in an evening, but you can hear that clearly they had a great old time watching that film and it inspired them. Yeah, for sure. And I was thinking, I wonder 
wonder if this song is more sung at birthday parties now in North America and you know and the UK than the actual happy birthday song. I don't know. I think this is sort of the go-to often for people's birthday parties, you know, versus happy birthday to you. I, I can tell you that for my 40th, which was a, a ways ago now, yeah. that's that's what my wife put on. That's the <laughs> go-to for sure. <laughs> she cranked up birthday. But is it true that later Lennon called it garbage? Or yeah, was that, he seemed to do that with a few times. He did. You know, if I, I heard somebody raise it. It was David Quantic, the uh, the author and, and playwright, uh, and I heard him talking about about this, and he he put it really well. I guess he's an author, so he's good with words. <laughs> this just in, but uh, yeah, John Lennon shat on a lot of his own work and the mm-hmm. Beatles' work uh, as a, a guy who was still relatively young. He was he was 40 years old, and a lot of those interviews where he was critical of the work, he was closer to 30. Right. And it, you know, we were all, among other things, robbed of the opportunity of hearing how his opinions undoubtedly would have changed, as all of ours do, if he was still with us and a man in his 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, we'll never know that because those you know, his life was cut short and mm-hmm. those opinions are what they are. But yeah, he he was famously uh, critical of, of birthday and a lot of Beatles work that people now look at and go, well, geez, I thought it was a great song. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Uh, Patty Harrison, Yoko Ono on background mm-hmm. vocals. Yeah. And Rody Malovins uh, also helping out there on hand claps. And and I should mention to, uh, to our younger listeners, if we have any, um, <laughs> just the entire concept concept of hey there's a movie on tv that we want to see right. so we've got to go home and watch it there, there's there was no such thing as a as a home taping mechanism no. <laughs> so, whose house can we go to who's got the television yeah, let's go over to their house and it was paul's paul i believe he still has a house paul mccarty on cavendish avenue just around the corner a five minute walk from abbey road studios yeah. uh, nice. so they would have you know gone over there and watch this movie uh, with their rock and roll heroes come back and cut this great track pretty sweet when you lived in london did you pop in and see paul i walked by did you i'll admit to that (laughs) (laughs) i I walked by there's a ton of great places in uh in london you know what you know you i guess you take it for granted although i don't think i did when i lived there but uh, you know they have they'll have some places blue historical plaques outside of the house and you, you're walking around up on Savile Row area, which is where the Beatles Apple HQ was and Jimi Hendrix lived nearby his apartment. Oh, yeah. uh, on my walk from where we lived in Battersea up into Chelsea, I would walk up uh, Flood Street and on Flood Street were the uh, photographic studios of Michael Cooper, who took the front cover photo for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in that studio. Oh, cool. So you'd walk by and go, wow. Yeah. yeah so uh, cool. It's a great city for that kind of thing, for sure. So we go to uh, track two on side three and a song written, as many of them were, in Rishikesh, John Lennon's Your Blues. classic John Lennon his you know abrasive emotional vocals really nails it I think it's a great um, 
band performance, this one, and also listening um, to the version that they did on the Rock and Roll Circus, the Stones Rock yes. and Roll Circus, just a couple, was it a couple months later in December? Um, with Keith Richards, um, the fantastic Mitch Mitchell, speaking of Jimi Hendrix, on drums, and Eric Clapton on guitar. I mean, it's such a tight performance for a live performance. And uh, the song on the album, too, is, is just so well played. And, uh, you know, despite its sort, sort of depressing subject matter, because John Lennon was feeling, <clears throat> excuse me, really depressed and suicidal and all that kind of thing. I don't know. It has so much energy, this song. Well, one of the reasons for that might have been, um, famously, the, this is the story told <clears throat> by one of the engineers, Ken Scott, and this is from Mark Lewison's book, The Complete Beatles Recording Sessions. Uh, George had this idea that he wanted to do it in the control room, a part of a song with the speakers blasting so that he got more of an onstage feel. And I remember that John Lennon came in at one point, and I turned to him and said, bloody hell, the way you lot are carrying on, you'll be wanting to record everything in the room next door. <laughs> The room next door was tiny, where the four-track tape machines were once kept, and it had no proper studio walls or acoustic setup of any kind. Lennon replied, that's a great idea. Let's try it on the next number. The next number was your blues, and we literally had to set it all up. Them and the instruments in this minute room, that's how they recorded your blues, and it worked great. And yeah. You, you can almost hear the closeness and grunginess. Interesting. That's I had, I didn't know that. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of the Exile on Main Street album that the Stones did. And they were way down in the basement in the hallway. I mean, maybe there was something just about being in that kind of close, you know, constricted environment that makes you just give her. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, Ringo references it in, I believe it's the anthology and just talks about it being a great band track because mm -hmm. they were all in this room and and uh, the way he tells the story, you, know, you literally couldn't turn around too quickly or your guitar neck would, would whack into one of your bandmates. Oh, yeah. Just, you know, playing in tight like that. Um, yeah, there's nothing like that feeling, Ashley. You don't want to be like that all the time, but it's fun when you're, when you're in that situation, as long as everything's not bleeding into everything else. And well, I imagine you played small venues and big venues. Uh, does it affect your performance if you're spaced out, like in a, a bigger venue, you know, you hey, here's... Here's Jane's spot over by the keys and with the horns, and then 12 feet away is uh, where the singer is, as opposed to you play a little club and you could be a couple feet away. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a different feeling. I remember the first time I played a big stage with my band Spy Girl, it was strange because we we're used to you know rehearsing in a tiny basement room and most of our gigs were small, uh, you know, and having your own monitor and stuff is quite extraordinary. And you do, it's, it affects your performance because unless you rehearse like that, you have to really pay attention when you're playing live like that. So. He, uh, Lennon played it a couple of times live. The one time uh, you mentioned, uh, just after the album had come out on the Rock and Roll Circus with uh, Keith Richards played bass, Mitch Mitchell on drums, Eric Clapton on, on lead guitar. And then uh, the second occasion was on the 13th of September, 69, at the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival Festival. All right. And he plays it there uh, Yoko's on vocals with him, Clapton's on lead, Klaus Vorman is on bass, and mm. Alan White is on drums. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty shitty rendition. Uh, mm. it's, it's on the- it's, Really? It's a, okay, I'll have to check that yeah, out. Yeah, it's on the album Live Piece in Toronto. It, it's not great, but he, he did play it a couple of times. Yes, I'm
All right, so we go from your blues and a pretty heavy, swampy sound to it yeah. to just a beautiful Paul McCartney performance in Mother Nature's Son. And it is, you know, from that Lennon, the hardness of Lennon to the soft, gentle, gorgeous sound of uh, Paul McCartney and his vocals and those George Martin horn arrangements. I mean, I can't say enough about that. I think this must have been, George Martin's horn arrangements must have been what got me addicted to the sound of horns and the, and the sound of the trumpet and brass because, I mean, there's nothing like them. You know, you've got them in one ear and you've got Paul McCartney's vocals in the other ear and then it switches back and forth and I don't know this song's a beautiful arrangement it's so simple but Trumpets, two trombones, yeah. arranged by George Martin. McCartney does everything else. Vocals, acoustic guitar, drums, timpani, and bass. Mm-hmm. Does it all. Yes. Uh, it was inspired by a lecture given uh, while the Beatles were in India. Uh, John Lennon recalls that this was from a lecture of Maharishi where he was talking about nature I had a piece called I'm Just a Child of Nature, which turned into Jealous Guy years later, both inspired from the same lecture of Maharishi. John Lennon said that in an interview with David Sheff. Um, recorded during a, a sort of a fractious period for the Beatles, McCartney worked mostly alone on the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I mentioned, no other Beatles on it. And uh, Lennon was apparently a little miffed mm-hmm. uh, that McCartney had just you know gone ahead and, and done this. Ken Scott, one of the engineers, recalls, Paul was downstairs going through the arrangement with George Martin and the brass players. Everything was great. Everyone was in great spirits. It felt really good. Suddenly, halfway through, John and Ringo walked in, and you could cut the atmosphere with a knife. An instant change. It was like that for 10 minutes. Then as soon as they left, it felt great again. It was very bizarre very stressful it sounds very stressful to me i mean you know you you think oh in walk your bandmates and oh let's give them something to do and play on it but it it would be yeah it sounds like it was you could cut that tension with a knife i think so i mean mccartney you know stating the obvious uh, this just in but prodigious talent Mm multi-instrumentalist you play a bunch of instruments yourself uh some (laughs) keys guitar trumpet by by my count Mm -hmm. tell me a bit about your your musical background background what's your core instrument and and how did you uh, how did you diversify into all the others my core instrument is piano so i learned classical as a kid and uh took lessons and then I, I didn't really ever pick up a guitar or anything. We didn't have them lying around the house or, or things like that. So I grew up in a classical household. 
so I learned the piano, but always loved the song, you know, the uh, you know a good folk song or a good pop song. So I was very addicted to those from an early age. And then I decided um, in my early 20s, which I'd, I'd already gone to UBC and got my degree, so I decided in my early 20s just to go to music school because I was... I wanted to play more, you know, I wanted to learn more. And that's where I picked up the trumpet. Had a great teacher by the name of Alan Matheson, who's a fantastic composer, arranger, jazz trumpet player. And, you know, met a ton of people, started playing in bands at that point. And then um, I think the guitar became just a means to an end because I needed something that wasn't the piano that I could, you know, play at parties or at campfires really it was or to write on when you, there's no piano around so that's why I ended up picking up the guitar so so when you look at all the Beatles do you maybe identify a little bit more with McCartney because of that multi-instrumentalist approach I think probably I mean I think especially now that I'm uh looking back on his career and realizing how much he does you know and what he's what he was capable of um so I do, I have an affection for that and I have affection for his kind of old style that he brings in sometimes too because it's, it's you know, mixing up musical styles. I've never really had a, I've never really been prone to play just one style of music. I love jazz, I love classical, I love pop, I love rock. So it's nice to, um, yeah, I feel an affiliation with that for sure. So in your old band, Spy yeah. Girl, uh, you played, I believe, mainly keys and trumpet. Yes. Uh, now with your, you know, your incarnation now with The Real Shade or, or just doing something with with Tim uh, Vesely and some uh -huh. other musicians, you're mostly guitar? When I play live, it's mostly guitar. I mean, I just play rhythm guitar, so I always would ideally have a lead guitarist, like Gord Tuff played in a previous iteration of the band, or Johnny James. So I'd, I couldn't play lead guitar to save my life, but I love playing rhythm guitar. It's fun, and you get to stand up, you know, like Elton John said, nobody can become a sex symbol sitting at the piano. <laughs> so, uh, and then not that I'm trying to be a sex symbol, let's get that straight, I'm uh, 56, but... Um, but it's true, you know, it's so fun to be able to stand up and play the guitar. And when I started The Real Shade, coming out of Spy Girl, where I'd spent a lot of time sitting in our piano section with my friend James Ong, uh, it was nice to be able to just kind of bust out and play some trashy garage pop, really. So the next cut, uh, pure John Lennon. Everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. A great track. Come on, come on. Great track, definitely. Um, the working title, I think, was Come On, Come On, which yes. also has a really good energy to it, you know, because he says that so much during it. Um, written a, maybe about him and Yoko, telling everyone just to take it easy because everyone was freaking out about her being around all the time. She was the first female consistent presence in the Beatles and, world. And certainly during this album, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So she, it was the, you know, enter Yoko Ono and... And uh, that's switched things up a bit. But um, 
A lot of people believe the song was about their heroin use, the reference to the term monkey. What do yeah, you think? Yeah, I've seen Paul McCartney quoted as, as saying that, as uh, give me a monkey can be, uh, was, I, I want to say it was old jazz slang for yeah. uh, for heroin. Yeah. Uh, and they were both on, on smack at this point. Um, yeah. or on the verge of being. But Lennon has said uh, that, uh, you know, they were, as you are, they were in love and in a relationship and they were cool with everything. And, hey, every, you know, we're honest and we're out here. Everybody's got something to hide except for you know, me and my monkey was mm-hmm. the, was behind it. Um, I, I think it's a great tune. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lyrics are kind of fun. You know, inside is out, outside is in. But... Not my most memorable Beatles tune. No, definitely not. Um, I do, yeah, I really like the energy and I like that part at the end where he does the bell, like the bell's clanging. It's like as if he's the rushing kids out during a fire alarm or something. There's an urgency to it, you know? Well, and the McCartney bass, the boom, 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 at the end. Really great. I mean, as usual, great performances. Um, but the interesting, you know, the aspect of the, the Ono Lennon relationship is kind of. Definitely interesting and, you know, one of the first times you sort of get that sense that they were really a team, you know, um, and apparently they were the, they were, everybody else wasn't really interested in the, in the harder drugs that they were doing. So, the, so I guess that sort of set them apart a little bit as a couple, I don't know, um, unfortunate, I suppose. Uh, what else do I have uh, thinking about this one? Um, oh, there's a great demo version that's of this song recorded at George's. Did you see Esher or is it Escher? Esher. Esher. Um, it's a, kind of a looser Bob Dylan-esque jammy version. It's kind of cool. It's nice to hear. Those are great to listen to if, if you pick up the 50th anniversary box set of the White Album that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, and uh, well, 2018 would have been the 50th anniversary, so that's when it came out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you can get either CD or vinyl, uh, and all of the Esher demos, and they've been polished up, and the, the stereo is a little better, and the, than, than the bootleg versions. But it's 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 such a window into their creative process. Yeah. Sexy Sadie, what have you done? Yes, Sexy Sadie. I love this song so much. And, you know, it's it's such a, it's got such a great backstory and it's such a catchy song. I mean, when I find myself singing something from this album, it's, it's, it's either this one or, you know, me and my monkey. So I guess it was originally... Maharishi, what have you done? And yeah. then they changed it to Sexy Sadie. Um, was this the first Me Too song, Paul? Uh, you know what? <laughs> it could be. Had there been hashtags in Twitter back then, they were fortunate not to have any of that. But yeah, it could, could be. And, you know, I've read that it's the first example of a diss track where you're, you know, you're dissing someone. I guess they were dissing the Maharishi. Um, changed, his, changed his gender which I'm not sure I agree with. I think they kept, should have kept him a guy. But um, it's a great song. And um, the backstory of, you know, the apparent sexual advances that the Maharishi was making on various women in the entourage, which later were 
said to be untrue. So we don't know really if that's true or not. Um, but I love this song because also the influence that it has from, you know, say, for example, Smokey Robinson's uh, song, I've Been Good to You, and then later inspiring people like Radiohead, for example, the Karma Police song, which actually takes a whole section of chords and uses it blatantly in their song, which is an amazing song, which I loved, but I didn't realize until recently that they'd done that. Yeah, so, I'm going to have to go back and, and give that a listen. You know, it's in, however big you think you are, it goes uh, C, D, G, F sharp 7. Great chord progression, let's just say that. So I guess Tom York heard that and went, great chord progression. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to use that. And then there's a section in Karma Police where it says, this is what you get, this is what you get if you mess with us. And it's that chord progression exactly same over and over again. So Bully for them. I don't know why they didn't ever... I guess you can't get sued for using a chord progression. Because, I mean, there are lots of songs that are, you know, are based around other songs' chord progression, like rhythm changes and things like that. So, But I thought that was really uh, cool, just to see the evolution of influence. That's great. That that is. I've I've never picked up on that. I love that. Uh, and you're right. Typical John Lennon acerbic yeah. kind of. He I mean, he did a few of those. And and it was another one. Uh, again, you know, different era, uh, different sensibilities. But uh, he was he was a great lover of the, you know, that woman. She's gonna get hers. Yeah. You know, r- run for your life, being the you know the uh, ultimate uh, infamous example. Yeah. Um, he kind of walks a line there, in my opinion, of. Uh, almost into a little bit of maybe, I don't want to say the word, but you know, he was kind of hard on women sometimes, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a bunch, yeah, uh, getting better, right? I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things. But again, I I just think it's in the context of the time. uh, I don't think it had the same meaning that it does now, if that makes any sense. Uh, Sensibility, I mean... Sensibilities change. That's true. Uh, that would never get written now. Yeah, and same with songs like "Jealous Guy." Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's another one, and and this one, uh, to your point, like he he changed. It, it was he, John Lennon acknowledging in a Rolling Stone interview in 1970. That's about the Maharishi. Yes, I copped out, and I wouldn't write Maharishi. What have you done? You made a <laughs> fool of everyone, but now it can be told, fab listeners. Uh, but he changed it from. Yeah, he changed it from a male to a female. And so you had another sort of Lennon, you know, she's going to get hers mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. type of song. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul McCartney's take on it, uh, which he says in his book, Many Years From Now, the Barry Miles book, mm-hmm. they, they being George and John, were scandalized at these rumors about the Maharishi. And I was quite shocked at them. I said, but he never said he was a god. In fact, very much the opposite. He said, don't treat me like a god. I'm just a meditation teacher. There was no deal about you mustn't touch women, was there? There was no vow of chastity involved. So I didn't think it was enough cause to leave the whole meditation center. That was McCartney's take on the whole thing. Interesting. Did yeah. It? I mean, he sounds, the Maharishi sounds like he was a very um, complicated person, like just like anybody is complicated. So uh, from what I've read about him, he sounds like partly had some really wonderful ideas and great teachings, and, and but also maybe had some failings as well. But 
And they all, in later years, uh, Harrison, when he was still alive, McCartney has, and so has Ringo, uh, said that there was no real substance to the rumors about him hitting on uh, a couple of uh, female members of the entourage. Uh, In fact, a guy named Magic Alex, Alex uh, Madras, who was sort of a guru to John Lennon, for lack of a better description, showed up and it is said in hindsight that he was jealous of the attention that John was focusing on the Hamaharishi. So he threw a little bit of, uh, threw a, 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 you know, a a cat into the canary cage, so to speak. Interesting. That's one Beatles story. Yeah, there's so many. So from that tune, we skip on to the next one and... Helter Skelter. Uh, they started work on this the same day session that they were finishing up John Lennon's Cry Baby Cry. Uh, McCartney was inspired to write Helter Skelter famously after reading an interview with The Who's Pete Townsend where he described their September 1967 single I Can See for Miles as the loudest, rawest, dirtiest song The Who had ever recorded. Uh, he then said he went and wrote Helter Skelter to be the most raucous vocal, loudest drums, etc. And did they ever? When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. You know, the thing about that Who song, which is a great song, but I have always thought of that chorus, I can see from Miles, as quite, like, it's not super raucous. It's quite melodic and smooth and beautiful. I mean, the verses are uh, a little bit more raucous, but I, I, I'm surprised that Pete Townsend thought that was the most raucous that they'd ever been. Um, but it, yeah, it showed the kind of battle of the bands that was going on at the time, I guess. Um, but I do, I, this is a great song. Again, Paul McCartney, you know, he, he's kind of matching the Lennon's energy that Lennon has in your blues and just going for it. And he, I think he must have blown his voice out almost on this one. He did such a great vocal, great lead vocal, totally opposite of Mother Nature's Son style of singing, which again shows how, um, you know, how he's capable of so many musical styles and he's so... What's the word I'm looking for? Diverse. Paul? Diverse. Was, is there is there is any there a better word? Than w- that was yet? was there a rock and roll singer of that era, late '60s, early '70s? You know, McCartney. I'm thinking of Ram and a couple albums after that. Mm-hmm. Who had more voices than Paul McCartney? Not that I can think of. And who did them but, better? No, it's remarkable. His 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 range of vocal ability is is uncanny. I don't know how he was. I mean, I'm assuming he didn't record Helter Skelter and Mother Nature's Son in the same day because how could you do that? You know, uh, yeah, he's quite a remarkable singer. Um, I just love the primal raw nature of this Helter Skelter song, and it's kind of it's slightly disturbing because of the uh, Manson connection. After the fact, unfortunately, it has to, you know, that always manages to sneak in there when I'm listening to it, the kind of chaos and disorder of the meaning of the song. 
But then at the same time, it's just a really fun song. Uh, now the story behind that, if you don't know, this is the quick version, Charles Manson, uh, noted uh, psychotic nutbar who uh, who murdered a bunch of people with his followers back in California back in the 60s. Charles Manson told his followers that several White Album songs, particularly Helter Skelter, were part of the Beatles' coded prophecy of an ap- apocalyptic war in which racist and non-racist whites would be maneuvered into virtually exterminating each other over the treatment of blacks. Manson employed Helter Skelter as the term for this sequence of events. In his interpretation, the lyrics of the Beatles' Helter Skelter describe the moment when he and the family would emerge from their hiding place. And it does taint the song. John Lennon later dismissed Manson as just an extreme version of the type of listener who read false messages in the Beatles' lyrics, such as those behind the 1969 Paul is Dead rumor. Lennon also said, all that Manson stuff was built around George's song about pigs and this one, Paul's song about an English fairground. It has nothing to do with anything, least of all to do with me. Yes, yeah. And I, I think they had to put up with a lot of that from fans, you know, people reading the meaning into it. Um, and this is obviously the most extreme version of that and the most upsetting. So in a way, I feel bad for them that that happened, obviously, and uh, bad for anybody involved in that awful kind of historical event. So, But you know what else is creepy about this one is the way... It, it's it's really cool, but it's also creepy in hindsight because of the way it fades in and then comes back in. And you're like, oh, oh, they're gone, they're gone, they're gone. No, 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 there they are again. So it kind of, <laughs> that part creeps me out a little bit at the same time. I love it. Well, it started off as basically, if, if you hear what you can on the the uh, anniversary version of the White Album that has a lot of demos, it started off as sort of a blues vamp. Uh, and they did a version that went on for over 27 minutes, which must be just dreadful to listen to the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> and they, they trimmed it down and changed it. Uh, finished up at a, you know, the song fades out, you're right, fades back in, fades out partially. And then you get the, the three cymbal crashes and Ringo Starr, it was, came from the end of the 18th take. He threw his drumsticks across the studio and screamed, I got blisters on my fingers. Uh, and he actually did. His fingers were actually bleeding. Those the cymbals are great, though. I, you know, and you don't hear him play cymbals like that very much. So I love that part of it. Yeah. Uh, they edited that on to the final take uh, to give you that finish. And bizarrely, uh, on the mono version of the album, it was not mixed in. They don't. They don't have the "I got blisters on my fingers" at the end. Okay. Only and, on the stereo. And version. so the mono was released. Mono and stereo were released in the UK, but only the stereo in the US. Is that the correct? Case? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was. Yeah. The, it was the last. Beatles album to be to have a, a proper mono mix. Yeah, uh, Abbey Road, Let It Be, uh, coming out later. We're all in stereo now. Your old band Spy Girl. We've mentioned them a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lovely showcase for the the vocals of lead singer Coralie Tonak. 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 Yeah. Now, not exactly helter skelter heavy, but no. to me, more of a, a heavy sound than your new band, The Real Shade, by design. I think just by nature of the fact that there were six of us in the band versus just a little scrappy four piece or three piece, um, and we all had ideas, and we we just love. I think we love. We were listening to a lot of '90s pop. We were listening to a lot of Portishead. We were listening to a lot of Radiohead at that point in time. The whole band, a lot of kind of tricky the trip hop Bristol scene. So I think it lent itself to that. 
And we were going through a lot as a group of friends. We had um, a few, we lost a few of our friends at that time. So there was a lot of kind of heaviness feeling. So I think our songs just, and we weren't, we just weren't afraid of layering stuff up. I think we loved doing that. And that's what happened to, that's what happened to the music. But mm -hmm. um, a lot of it, I think, was influenced by Radiohead and Portishead. The heads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we close out the last cut on side three. You come out of Helter Skelter, the cymbal crash. I got blisters on my fingers uh, into a George Harrison penned ode to God. Long, long, long. It's I mean, this is, you know, the interesting thing about this song is, you know, it could be a love song, but it's also an ode. It's also a, a, a ballad for God and his his faith ballad and his belief system, his, his sort of pure, earnest beliefs. And I mean, I have so much respect for George Harrison and how he just seemed like such a, a pure human being. And there's this interview I watched recently, his last interview when he was... Uh, when he was talking about his transcendental ideas and stuff. I mean, he was just a lovely human being. And this song, the way it starts with his vocals, I mean, compared to Helter Skelter, all of a sudden you hear these lead vocals that are so quiet, almost as if they're deferring to God, that he's, he's just not good enough, he's not worthy, you know, and these lovely, it's been a long, long, in the background almost. Um, and... The chord structure based on Bob Dylan's Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. Uh, obviously, this song's a lot shorter. I think Sad-Eyed Lady's about 11 minutes or something. It's got about 400 verses. But, you know, just the arrangement of that is remarkable. To, is, and I think it takes a lot of guts to have a lead vocal come in so quietly, mm. and just sort of beautifully like that. I, I know way back when, when they were first remastering the white album for uh, for compact disc. Mm -hmm. So we're going back again into the 80s. Uh, but they, they had, and technology wasn't what it is now, they had a lot of problem with tape hiss because of, of, of you know, digital technology shows up the warts a lot more uh, and uh, trying to get the level up on the vocal uh, and oh, be because it's so low. Yeah. Uh, Harrison says, the U in long, long, long is God. I can't recall much about it except the chords, which I think we're coming from, as you mentioned, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, D to E minor, A and D, those three chords, uh, and the way that they moved, so he recalled. It was the last of the George songs to be recorded for the White Album. Uh, the order of recording, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, was the first. Uh, Piggies was the second George song, Savoy Truffle, and then Long, Long, Long. Oh, interesting, yeah. And, I, you know, it's. I think the... It's it's a song. It's a pure song. It's not it's not a psychedelic kind of expression. It's more of a just a it's a, it's a pure entity, and I think that sort of suits the subject matter too, the pureness of it and the compactness of it as a song, and that otherworldliness of that Hammond organ that 
Paul McCartney plays is really, you know, the way they put it together just makes so much sense for the subject matter. And famously, uh, you know, a Beatles fortuitous studio accident, uh, Chris Thomas, who is an assistant to George Martin, tells the story. There's a sound near the end of the song. It's sort of a rattling type sound, which is a bottle of Blue Nun wine rattling away on top of a Leslie speaker cabinet. It just happened. Paul hit a certain note and the bottle started vibrating. And we thought it was so good that we set the mics up and did it again. The Beatles always took advantage of accidents. Oh, accidents, some of the most, the greatest things happen from accidents. But you think they could have done better than Blue Nun, don't you? <laughs> Paul, you're a wine guy. No, no, my mind went there as well. The bloody Beatles drinking Blue Nun. What the heck? That's, that's, like, a, that's like a tramp's wine. I, like guess, a, I guess there weren't as many options back then. Maybe not. Maybe, or, or maybe it was, uh, you know, maybe it was a good wine back then. Maybe it was. Yeah, yeah. just like Schloss Lauterheim was a good wine <laughs> and, in my and, day. And You've got to think that in terms of the lineup of the record that they specifically put it in after Helter Skelter, I would think. Yes. Yes, I would think so. You mean just for the contrast aspect? This is just an album of contrast and it just seems to go from one, it seems to go from loud to quiet to loud to quiet to weird back to quiet. So yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it is a great side finisher from back in the days when you had vinyl and sides and that was the last cut on side three. So you'd get up, stretch your legs, roll another one or maybe uh, top up your wine glass before getting on to side four which we will do. Now, if you're enjoying this podcast, you can make a donation to support the production costs of the podcast uh, by heading to the website romicast.com, that's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com, and click on the Support the Walrus button. Uh, I'll give you a shout-out in the next episode if you'd be so kind as to uh, send a donation my way. You can also navigate to the page Hire Paul. Have you ever thought of a promotional podcast for your next album release? I'm talking to artists here. Your tour, your book, your art exhibition. If you have I'm Your Guy, an experienced podcast producer and broadcaster who loves the arts and will work with you to produce a podcast that will showcase your talent. If you're interested, you can get in touch with me via the website and we will go from there. Also at the website, you can find each and every episode of the Walrus Was Paul series. The best way to not miss an episode is to hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you get your podcasts and you will be notified whenever a new episode drops. So, to side four of the White Album and cut one. And so we now dip our collective musical toes into the deep, deep water that is John Lennon's Revolution.
Now, this was the first song they started to work on for the White Album in May and June of 1968. It was started in India in early 68, and it was inspired by the political turmoil of 1968. If you're not a history student, just a quick summation here. It was a wild time. There was a student uprising in Paris in May of 1968. There were ongoing protests in America against the war in Vietnam, and Martin Luther King was assassinated in April of 1968. The world was a crazy place. Sound familiar? Uh, And all of that at the time inspired John Lennon to write a song called Revolution. Um, well, I love this one almost more than the other, the B-side version of this song, which was the more popular, right? Uh, and I remember not ever hearing this version. I heard, you know, because we had the blue, what is it, the blue album with, with Hey Jude on it. Yeah. And then this was put on as well, I think. Uh, yes, yeah, so the, the, right? on, on the blue album, they have the, the B-side single version. Revolution yeah. was the B-side to Hey Jude. Right. Uh, but yeah. yeah, completely different version. Completely different. Yeah. And this one, and then I heard this one, I love the kind of greasy, slow, bluesy feel of this one. And with those shooby doo BGs, those are just such a, a great addition. Almost like he's sort of taking the piss out of himself in a way. That's the way I kind of saw them. But they also add this great element and... Um, just the sound of it um, is fantastic, and Lennon's vocals, as always, great. Um, and his reaction, and the other thing, his reaction to the, I guess it was a reaction to the political left that was wanting him to be more hardlined, right? And he was still, sort of still in his, let's all be peaceful frame of mind well that that's the uh, the, the the famous uh, you know in this version it's you know you can count me out in then in the single version you can count me out right. uh, so yeah it's that's what I say it, it's such it, it is deep water they started working on this um, and it was just called Revolution at the time, not Revolution One. And they they went on recording a basic rhythm track, which went on for ten minutes and seventeen seconds. Uh, and it was they took that one to do additional overdubs on some more sessions. Uh, bottom line being that. Th- it was basically split into two parts. It was a more conventional Beatles track, and then there were loops and chants and different elements to it, which he then hived off from that track and made Revolution 9. So this song, this initial session, birthed three tracks, basically. Right. Yeah, that's fantastic. But that's a great choice, really. I mean, to, to separate those two, I think, was really a good choice. Because this, this is a song unto itself, for sure. Um, just, the, you know, all the meaning in the lyrics versus that art, arty collage of Revolution 9, which I guess we'll get to soon. Um, but I love this song. I love the horns again. They're great. They're panned over on the right. Uh, the distort, distorted guitar that switches back and forth. 
you know, in your earphones. Thank goodness for stereo, Paul. I mean, I don't know. I like mono too. But, you know, you can get the breadth and the width of it with that stereo and just hear the work of George Martin, um, you know, in a beautiful way. Well, it's interesting because Lennon said he initially, he loved the song and he wanted it to be put out as a single. But it was vetoed by both George and Paul. This is a quote from Lennon. The first take of Revolution, well, George and Paul were resentful and said it wasn't fast enough. Now, if you go into the details of what a hit record is and isn't, maybe. But the Beatles could have afforded to put out the slow, understandable version of Revolution as a single, whether it was a gold record or a wooden record. But because they were so upset over the Yoko thing and the fact that I was becoming as creative and dominating as I had been in the early days after lying fallow for a couple of years, it upset the apple cart. I was awake again and they weren't used to it. Right. Yeah. Thus, more tension between the band members. So so then they re-recorded a version that ended up as as the B-side of uh, Hey Jude. And so it's, I'm just looking. So the the order in which most people were introduced to the song was the fast version first. It came out in August of 68, B-side to Hey Jude, and, you know, heavy compressed drums and guitars, and it's like, it's a hell of a song. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the album came out in November of 68, so several months later, and they heard the slow version, now called Revolution 1, and then Revolution 9, and a lot of people thought they bloody ruined the song. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I don't think they did. I I love it. And I think it makes you take a pause and think about the song in a whole new way. And you think, oh, that's what, you know, that's what he's talking about. Because in the first, it's a, it's a, it's a much poppier, it's much rockier. And as you say, that compression really uh, pumps it up. Um, And the speed, obviously, and it was in a different key. I think it might've been in a tone up, but I can't remember. Um, But it's just, it's almost like a different song with the same lyrics, you know, and the same chord structure. But this revolution is, you know, that kind of grungy, what is it? I don't know if it's 12-8 or whatever the feel is. Uh, just really gets the point across. Gets uh, Lennon's lyrics across really well, I think. Yeah, it, it, and it's, uh, you know, what I was able to, to see when researching. So it's, it's uh, in blues style, relaxed tempo, uh, a blues influence, the shooby doo wop vocals, a reference to doo wop music, basic time signature 12 8, uh, and, the, and sort of a shuffle. Uh, and then they have some extra half length bars during the verses a couple extra beats at the end of the last chorus. This is all stuff I just read. I have no clue, Jane. You're the musician. Does that <laughs> Go make with sense? It, Paul. Yes, it all makes sense. You're saying all the right words. Because <laughs> okay. I, I read that stuff and I just rely on my musical guest to go, yeah, yeah. Um, I can take you only so far. Yeah. <laughs> hey, classically trained. You can take uh, you can take me uh, very far. Now, can you think of a song? I know we, we talked prior to the show of a song where you had a couple of arrangements that you might have tried out. And I know you mentioned one by Spy Girl, uh, Every Day is the Same, yeah. uh, which I listened to both versions, the sort of demo and then the the, the bigger band version. Yeah. Is is Can you think of any other ones where I thought of this and then it ended up totally like that? Well, often, often it does. Often that's what happens. But I think with time constraints sometimes and budgetary constraints, I think if if I were 
if I had access to a studio on a daily basis, the way, say, maybe the Beatles had in their period of time, and I was able to go in every day, you know, uh, you might come up with more versions of the same song because often I hear two or three versions of the same song, but really you have to pick and choose and go, okay, let's default to that one. Um, but with Every Day is the Same, that song, which we just released the demo versions of them recently, uh, so they're not very hi-fi, they're quite lo-fi. However, that was basically just us starting with the band version and then later Coralie and John created the duo version on their own and we just thought, well, that's beautiful too and it makes total sense for the song. So I'm fond of both versions. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of, you know, any songs I write, I can I always hear it one way and then ultimately, especially working with someone like Tim who's got such beautiful arrangement ideas himself, um, you you kind of want to just go with what where it's headed, where it has a it has a a direction, and you kind of go with more so than I did probably in my twenties. I'm more willing to kind of go with what your bandmates hear for it, as opposed to kind of fighting for what I hear for it. It doesn't, and, and that can often be a really good thing. Jane, what's your take as a creative person on, and you did it a little bit with, with Spy Girl, where you, you put out the demo version, if you will, or the, the lo-fi version, and then the, the more produced version. But I mean, the Beatles are making, and many bands now, or bands from my youth, are putting out these enhanced versions of albums where you hear, and I'm sure when they were recording them, there was you know, there would have been no thought whatsoever in 1968 when the Beatles were sitting in Abbey Road Studios working on this, that all of those demos and work-throughs were one day going to be released to the public on an album and in a box set going for an extravagant amount of money. So where do you come, do you like to hear, or does it add anything to hear to sort of peek behind the curtain or would you be just as happy to hear um, revolution, what's on the record, what they put out, what they intended to put out. I don't need to hear them farting around at George's doing demo versions. Oh no, I want to hear them farting around at George's doing demo. I would like to be in that room. I want to hear, if I could, I would listen to every single version, every single take, if I could, if I had the time, um, you know. So... And I love it when bands put out the demo versions of their songs. And sometimes when you record the demo, you actually you actually record the true essence of the song without realizing it. Um, and then later you put out the more polished version, which will have you know good things as well. But the demo can tr sometimes just have a certain energy that you don't necessarily match in the studio. Mm. Yeah. Interesting you say that because uh, Paul Weller, who I'm a huge fan of, uh, he did that back when he was with the Jam. There's the version that came out of uh, a song called uh, Town Called Malice. But then if you buy, a, it was a compilation album that put out uh, called Snap by the jam and he specifically in the notes says this album includes the demo version uh of i'm sorry it's that's entertainment this album contains the demo version of that's entertainment because it had an energy to it that the the one that went out as the single didn't have absolutely yeah oh now i have to listen to that Paul, you've given me a lot of stuff. Oh, that I oh you can you can hear a difference. Yeah. It, it just sounds the demo version on Snap just sounds you know way more energetic, bouncing off the walls. Uh, the song that was released too is, is was great, but uh, yeah, you know, interesting that Weller would do that. 
For sure. Well, there's something to be, when you write a song, you get excited about it. I mean, you can't wait to rush home and meet up with your song again. It's like meeting a new friend. So you, when you're recording that demo, you're in that first phase of that early kind of love with the song. By the time sometimes you get to the studio, especially people, you know, indie musicians like myself who have financial constraints, uh, you you might have lost a little bit of that. And I'm not saying you do because you can regain it because of the people you're playing it with down the line. But sometimes it's just that first essence in your in your studio at home, you know, in your bedroom, wherever it is, that's just like, yes, mm-hmm. I love this song. So from Revolution, we slide into uh, classic Paul McCartney pastiche of Honey Pie. She was a working girl, north of England way. Now she's hit the big time. In the USA And if she could only hear me This is what I'd say Honey pie You are making me crazy I'm in love, but I'm lazy. Yeah, British Music Hall, classic Paul, theatrical. I love it. Um, I mean, I have mixed feelings about this this place that Paul McCartney likes to go to, you know, the vaudeville kind of stuff. But I also admire him for embracing it and putting it on an album and just going with his his gut. And um, I love the sax clarinet arrangement on this one, too, that old-style... You know, it's a great combination. Obviously, the reeds versus, you know, on other songs, they have all brass. Here, they have all reeds. Um, And the pure innocence and cleanliness of Paul McCartney's vocal. Well, it came from the right spot. I mean, according to McCartney, uh, which which you can see in, in some of their early writing especially, both John and I had a great love for Music Hall, what the Americans call vaudeville. Uh, I very much liked that old crooner style, the strange fruity voice that they use. So Honey Pie was me writing one of them to an imaginary woman across the ocean on the silver screen who was called Honey Pie. It's another of my fantasy songs. Yeah, definitely. And... Um you know, his again, his vocal range is really prevalent here. He's all over the place. He goes into his falsetto. It's quite quite remarkable. Um, and I was also surprised. I, I didn't realize that John Lennon liked this style as well. I thought it was just a Paul McCartney thing. I thought John Lennon had more disdain for that, for Paul McCartney's vaudeville leanings. But here, he does that beautiful sort of Django Reinhardt style guitar that's really, I don't know, it pays perfect respect to this style of music yeah i mean to me that right there that guitar solo says that's a guy buying in you know totally who's who's loving the song and they did i mean another thing i've referenced it before uh in other episodes of the podcast but where you can see that old american classic songwriter uh style is 
a big thing back then uh, a lot of those songs had was there was an intro to the song so think of yes. um i've got a crush on you you yeah. know of all the many millions of annabelles and williams and then it goes through and then all of a sudden i've got and the song proper starts right mm-hmm. pardon my singing oh no, it's great paul and <laughs> i've got a job for you and, down the road and the beatles love to you know to lead a better life yes. i need my love that's right out of the classic american songbook mm-hmm. and then the song starts. It's amazing. Um, So I I think they were both into it. And, you know, it's funny with Lennon and McCartney because, I mean, we like to put people in boxes and on shelves and in jars and and have them categorized because it's easier for our our thought process to do that. But Mm -hmm. you can look at Everybody was all Paul McCartney was the schmaltzy one, and he wrote all those character songs. And and I mean, John Lennon had some of those too. Sure. Um, you know, it doesn't come much more schmaltzy than love That's from right. John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. That's true. Um, yeah. You know, uh, "Sexy Sadie" is a character song for sure uh, that he's done. So. Well, I think if you're a musician, you can't help yourself. You're going to go there at some point or another. Um, you know, this song, it makes me think of Yellow Submarine, you know, which was kind of a, a kind of a goofy little number, I guess, and a lot of people didn't like it, didn't think it worthy. But the band just got behind it so much. I think I said this when we talked about Abbey Road. But, and Ringo's drumming, you know, it, it seems in this Honey Pie song, the whole band was there for him, you know. They were they were all for it, and Ringo's kind of humorous drumming and hitting those hits right with the vocal lines. It just is perfect, right? And they're just all on board. And just in terms of of uh, context of when they did it, it's always funny to look uh, at the order in which they did things. Uh, they'd taken a long weekend off. They they'd been spending a lot of time working on happiness as a warm gun. You know, pretty heavy song. Then they come back and, hey, now we're going to do Honey Pie. <laughs> yeah, maybe there was that sense of kind of, oh, we can re- re- sense of relief almost. I don't know. So from Honey Pie, we roll into the next cut, uh, George Song. Uh, it was started at Trident Studios the day after that they had finished working on Honey Pie. So the actual order on the album is, in this case, the order in which they were recorded, Savoy Truffle. You know, again, another great horn section. I'm such a sucker for a good horn section. And following on the previous song, the, the saxophones, all low-end saxophones, no, not an alto to be had, not a soprano, all tenor and baritone sax, which gives it like such an earthy, beefy sort of vibe. And I love that. Um, and, and, you know, and they also added distortion after the fact to those to make them even more grungy and earthy, I think. So this one's, you know, again, it's the subject matter isn't necessarily the thing that's remarkable. It's more the way the song is put together, in my opinion. Yeah, and uh, to your point, uh, this is uh, Brian Gibson, who was an engineer on the sessions. Uh, He says, the musicians, so three tenors, three baritones, as you referenced, they came up to the control room to listen to a playback. 
And George said to them, before you listen, I've got to apologize for what I've done to your beautiful sound. Please forgive me, but it's the way I want it. I don't think they particularly enjoyed hearing their magnificent sound screwed up quite so much, but they realized this was what George wanted and it was their job to provide it. So yeah, heavy, heavy duty uh, distortion uh, on that. A couple of high gain amplifiers and they overload and uh, I guess just in its raw form and I've never heard it, uh, they were really... They were given it. They must have been, and but you know the thing about the the way that distortion was applied is it's applied just perfectly. There's not too much. It doesn't get ugly. It gets raw, but it doesn't get to the point of being um, unpleasant to listen to. Although that dentist drill sound of the guitar solo is a little <laughs> hard to listen to at times, but so humor so humorous, you know. Um, I never heard it put that way. Do you, I, I wonder if that was. Uh yeah, I mean, it's about rotting teeth. Yeah, it's about rotting teeth, and it comes in right at the time, and it's almost kind of like, oh, you're wincing while you listen to it. George says, uh, yeah, written for Eric, as you mentioned, he's got this yeah. real sweet tooth, and he <laughs> just had his mouth worked on. Mm. Uh, his dentist said he was through with candy, so as a tribute, I wrote, you have to have them all pulled out <laughs> after the Savoy truffle. The truffle was some kind of sweet, just like all the rest, yeah. uh, to tease Eric. So there you go. Yeah. You know, this was um, also arranged by Chris Thomas, not George Martin, who was working in Martin. I think Chris Thomas came back from holiday. George Martin went off on his holiday. Now, that surprises me that he just left in the middle of the session, but I maybe he'd... Do you know about that? Do you know why he Well, he... he, he it, just from what I've read, to put yourself in George Martin's shoes, he's come off about a year ago, a year and a bit, when they're... They were working intensely to create this new soundscape that ended up being Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So very disciplined. And the White Album, from everything you read about the sessions and even acknowledged by the Beatles themselves who were still around, they were not particularly disciplined. Uh, There was a lot of noodling and jamming and uh, 18-minute versions of songs. And, you know, to put it in uh, simple language, a lot of dicking around. And I'm sure George Martin was sitting there going, you know, what is this? This is a waste of my time. And he had other artists who he could be producing. He was starting Air Studios by that point. So he got fed up and left and put Chris Thomas in charge. And then, you know, Chris Thomas left at some point and uh, Jeff Emmerich I believe uh, who was also left. he left so yeah, I, I don't think they were the happiest most organized of sessions yeah. so from that we go to a John Lennon track and Cry Baby Cry another one that was written mostly in India uh, they started work on it a few days after they'd finished working on the initial version or pardon me the single version of Revolution and before they started work on on Helter Skelter and uh, to an earlier point you made Jane Jenin was late, Lennon was later dismissive of Cry Baby Cry. He described it in 1980 as a piece of rubbish. For the children of the king. <laughs> so, the other one was a piece of garbage. This one was a piece yeah. of rubbish. Well, uh, no, I like this song. Um, I think it's a great um, performance. 
band performance. I love the dynamics. The arrangements are, are wonderful. That opening acoustic guitar with a little bit of flange on it is quite inspired, I think. Um, I think they added the flange effect after the fact. I don't, I'm not sure how prevalent... I'm not a guitar aficionado. Someone else would have to speak to this, but I'm not how prevalent... I'm not sure how prevalent pedals were in this day and age when we, they were recording this. Um, and that added the, uh, the harmonium of George Martin's harmonium. It almost sounds like an accordion at the beginning there. Mm -hmm. But um, it's, it's, it's a cool song. I don't have a lot to say about this one, but... But other than Jeff Emmerich did make his departure during this song. He did. He said uh, his quote, I lost interest in the White Album because they were really arguing amongst themselves and swearing at each other. The expletives were flying. I said to George, look, I've had enough. I want to leave. This is George Martin. He said that too. I don't want to know anymore. George said, well, leave at the end of the week. I think it was Monday or Tuesday. And I said, nope. I want to leave now, this very minute, and that was it. <laughs> Good <laughs> for him. Uh, the the wow. ode, uh, this song owes a debt to uh, Sing a Song of Sixpence, the nursery oh, right. rhyme, right? Yes. Uh, which, which shares a number of lyrical themes. Uh, sing a Song of Sixpence, Pocket Full of Rye, Four and Twenty Blackbirds Baked in a Pie. Uh, King was in his counting house, counting out the money. The queen was in the parlor eating bread and honey, so he owes a lot there. He he uh, he liked to go to that well. He went to it again for a cut on Double Fantasy called Clean Up Time. Right. Which, if you remember, the you know I think he it was his complete lift. The king was in the counting house, counting out the money. Yeah. Uh, the queen was in the kitchen, baking bread and honey. I think he says in that one. So. Interesting. Yeah, and that that going back to childhood, and then that little tiny song at the end that can you take me back. You know, sort of referring back to, can we go back to childhood? Maybe, I don't know. Um, go back to the top of the slide, you know, in Helter Skelter, maybe. And But do you know if they're singing Brother or Brahma, Take Me Back Brahma or Take Me Back Brother in that song? I think there's a dispute over what that was. No, I've, I've never I've never heard that. Can you take Brother... Brother, I just, I brother, just hear can it. Can you take me back? Yeah. Can you take me back where I came from? Can you take me back? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, just a cool little piece to put at the end of a sort of a nursery rhyme song. It, it's a little thing. It was ad libbed uh, during the session for "I Will" on September the sixteenth. Uh, so un completely unrelated to Cry Baby Cry. So that they, they tacked it on there as a bridge between Cry Baby Cry and Revolution 9. And I think it's just a brilliant piece of sequencing um, because it's the next song is it's taking you somewhere. I don't know if it's taking you back from where you came from, but it's taking you somewhere Yes, uh, into a weird, strange, psychedelic place. And that, of course, is Revolution 9. Yeah. You know, I think sequencing is a lost art, or it's becoming a lost art because we don't have to sequence it seriously because of the sort of decline of people listening to a full LP now. Um, it's mostly we're living in a single sort of world now, aren't we, really? Uh, so you can just pick and choose what you want to listen to on your plat streaming platform. So... But a good sequencing is so great when you hear, like, that makes so much sense to have that song following that one. I mean, they did a great job on this album with that. Dark to light to crunchy to smooth. Yeah, and, and it was, you can read about it in, uh, among other places, you can read it in Mark Lewison's book. Uh, and they 
it was a long, long, one of the longest sessions when they came in to do the final mix and sequence of this album. George wasn't there. He had left to go to New York, I believe it is, for for something else he had on the go. But uh, interesting bit of Beatles lore there is he'd originally recorded Not Guilty, intending it to be on the White Album, he wasn't there for the final sequencing and mixing, so... Uh-oh. <laughs> so snooze, you lose. So, <laughs> so it was not. Revolution 9, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll let you start, but you, you could do a, a couple of podcasts on this track alone, and in fact, that has been done if you want to poke around and have a look, but where do you come down with this? Oh, well, I, I have... Um I think anybody would have a deep relationship with this song if they've listened to it a few times. I think it's one of those songs that you're scared of listening to in a way. And then once you delve in and you, oh, I'm going to just dive in off the deep end and, and swim around, then you kind of go, oh, okay. And it's almost like you're on a movie set looking around in 3D, you know, in one of those, it's almost like you're in a virtual reality, especially when you've got good noise canceling headphones on and you just dive in and you go, okay, I'm just going to let it go where it wants to go and take me to the freaky places, then take me back to the lovely operatic sections and all the weird talky bits. Um, They used 45 sound sources. I mean, it's a beautiful, it's a piece of sound art. It's sound collage, and it's not the kind of song you'd want to put out if you were a young band trying to get a record deal, but uh, good for them for doing it, I'd say. Well, just in the context of the time, uh, they were influenced, McCartney particularly, but Lennon as well. Uh, McCartney had had an earlier stab at what's referred to as music concrete, uh, he did a, a track called Carnival of Light, which has never been released, never been heard. Um, you know, could be good, could be crap, but he, he had done that and it was never, it was, it's, it still is unreleased. Um, but you had Stockhausen, who was also a favorite of Lennon, Carl Heinz Stockhausen. Uh, and they were influenced by the, these, it, it's not a song, they, they were sound collages. And... It's interesting, Ian MacDonald in Revolution in the Head, which is an outstanding book on the Beatles, raises the excellent point that Revolution 9 is the world's most widely distributed avant-garde artifact. Yes. 50 years later, it's been heard by hundreds of millions of people. And quoting MacDonald again, it is one of the most striking instances of the communicative power of pop. Revolution 9 achieved exposure never imagined by the artists who pioneered its techniques, which were people like Stockhausen and Cage. Right. Yeah, brilliant. Like, absolutely brilliant getting it into people's homes. It's like, here you go. I mean, to me, it's like an abstract painting. You look at it and you can interpret it in so many different ways. It's very subjective. Um, And I just think it's a incredible piece of work to be honest I mean I remember I remember when I was back in music school making a a sound collage like this because I do love doing sound collages and mine wasn't on tape they did they did they used all tape sources obviously but mine was digital and I I had it almost done and then I lost the entire file and I had to rebuild it (laughs) but uh that was a fun day in the studio but you know the fact that they got all those different sound sources and just somehow, I would love to have, watch a documentary just on the making of this song, you know. Well, the, the basis of it was they took 
remember we talked earlier about revolution, what became revolution one, and there was a long sort of jam session and Lennon took part of that and that served as the sort of base on which it was built. Here's John Lennon talking about it. Revolution nine was an unconscious picture of what I actually think will happen when it happens, just like a drawing of a revolution. All the thing was made with loops. Those are tape loops. I had about 30 loops going, fed them into one basic track. I was getting classical tapes, going upstairs and chopping them up, making it backwards and things like that to get the sound effects. One thing was an engineer's testing voice saying, this is EMI test series number nine. I just cut up whatever he said and I'd number nine it. Nine turned out to be my birthday and my lucky number and everything. I didn't realize it. It was just so funny, the voice saying number nine. It was like a joke, bringing number nine into it all, all the time. That was it. Uh, the, that voice came off of an examination tape that was in the archive for the Royal Academy of Music. Um, and uh, it appears sporadically going throughout it. Lots of little... Thingies. What? What do you have? Any other little thingies you can throw in there on Revolution Nine well, in your notes? Well, wasn't this also their ninth album? Was it their ninth album? I'm just. I don't know. Uh, I thought I read that somewhere. Yes. Yes. Indeed. Yes. Um, so nine is and ninth you know, studio album. Yeah. Yeah. So Lennon really uh, nailed that one. And to me, it's like a it's it's like a mini version. This is like a mini version, a thumbnail version of the actual White Album. I look at this song and I think that's like a yeah, it's like a thumbnail of the album because because of its light and dark combinations, its various textures. You know, you see all these different kind of tensions, tension and release of the way that it was arranged. I mean, in a way, it's quite a remarkable composition. Uh, the big day was June twentieth, nineteen sixty-eight, in a session that started at seven o'clock in the evening and ended the following morning at three thirty. And they used machines in studios one, two, and three. And it is a live mix of the sound collage with numerous tape loops being played across a number of tape machines. So it's a live mix and performance. Amazing. It was not done in post. And, okay, here's a question for you that you might be able to answer. Bands since then have covered this song. So how on earth do you cover this song? Someone, one of your listeners needs to answer that for me. I saw it performed... Uh, one of those, it was at Matt, uh, Roy Thompson Hall in Toronto, uh, and it was one of those, you know, where they come in and they play the album, it's called Note Perfect, and they came in and they played, the and, and as a matter of fact, a guy I know who's a friend of the show, uh, and he's been on the show, Mike Daly, uh, Mike at one time played with those Note Perfect shows, <clears throat> and he wrote the charts, Ah. Out for Revolution Nine, he goes. Those wow. are my charts. Oh, my charts so he's the guy that can answer that for <laughs> so us. He's, he's <laughs> the guy. A uh, couple of other noties. Um, some of the things that are that you hear if you want to go back and listen to the song. George Martin saying, "Jeff, put the red light on." That's looped with heavy echo. Uh, a choir accompanied by backwards violins. Extracts from a symphony orchestral performance edited and rearranged and played backwards. A repeated sample from the orchestral overdub for A Day in the Life, recorded back in Feb of 67. A Mellotron, performed by Lennon and played backwards. Uh, various other extracts from symphonic and operatic recordings. And the final chord, and I'm not familiar with this piece of music, from 
Sibelius's Seventh Symphony. Oh, interesting. Uh, and then some high-pitched humming by Yoko Ono, <laughs> Lennon and George Harrison whispering six times the phrase, there ain't no rule for the, comp- for the company freaks. Wow, good one. So. I read some great quotes of, of people who reviewed this song, and, and uh, I thought I could read those out to you if you'll indulge me. So um, someone, I, can't, I, mean, I don't know who, I, I, I won't be able to give them credit, but I'm just, I just wrote the quotes down. Uh, someone called it an acid-soaked nightmare. Acid-soaked nightmare. Um, noisy, boring, and meaningless. There was a lot of, you know, there were, there was a lot of different opinions of this song. A pretentious piece of old cod swallop. Beautifully organized, most unpopular, but also most extraordinary. So, I mean, the opinions on this piece are all over the map. I think we can all agree, whatever it was, it was well ahead of its time. Absolutely. And it really puts you in a place, doesn't it? I mean, it's like it's like you're walking down the street and walking into people's offices and, and uh, apartments and just looking around. So then out of that, and again, we come back to sequencing. Uh, without question, you go from this nightmarish sound collage and you go into the most, one of the most tender, if not the most tender, beautiful closing song written by John Lennon as a lullaby for his son Julian and sung beautifully by Ringo Starr, Good Night. Orchestral arrangements by George Martin, you know, with just Ringo's vocal over top. What a uh, what a great uh, inspired choice to do it that way. I think it was done a few other ways before they landed on this one. Um, and you know, the interesting thing I found was this is for Julian Lennon. John Lennon wrote it for Julian, and then so this is the last track on side four. The last track on side two is Julia, which was written for his mother. So I thought that's an interesting piece of sequencing. Um, good work, you know, for John to get those both in there as the last song on the side. And the original version had Ringo on lead vocal, George Harrison and John Lennon playing the melody on guitars and Paul McCartney singing harmony. Uh, take 10 with the guitar part. You can hear on the, the 2018 50th anniversary box set of this album. But in the final version, no members of the Beatles other than Ringo appear on the track. It's just that beautiful, lavish orchestral score by uh, George Martin. We had 12 violins, three violas, three cellos, one harp, three flutes, one clarinet, one horn, one vibraphone, one string bass, played by 26 musicians, eight members of the Mike Samus Singers also took part in the recording doing the backing vocals. Uh, That was all laid down first and then Ringo came in and, and did his vocal. Amazing. And it reminds me of the closing credits of a film or something, you know? Um, and for some reason, this could be way off track because I haven't done my, I didn't go back and listen to, but do you know the film Brazil, Terry Gilliam's yeah, film? Yeah, yeah. For some reason, it reminded me of parts of that film that were really, but I could be way off track. So you can just edit that out. I just wanted to throw that out there because I didn't have time to go back and listen to 
the opening and closing credits of Brazil. But uh, huh. it's got that sort of, I don't know, otherworldliness for sure. Um, McCartney's take on it? I think John felt it might not be good for his image for him to sing it, but it was fabulous to hear him do it. He sang it great. We heard him sing it in order to teach it to Ringo, and he sang it very tenderly. John rarely showed his tender side, but my key memories of John are when he was tender. That's what has remained with me, those moments where he showed himself to be very generous and loving person. I always cite that song as an example of the John beneath the surface that we only saw occasionally. I don't think John's version was ever recorded, which is, which is our loss if it wasn't. And I don't know about you, when I hear the end, I get a lump in my throat. The big swell of strings and Ringo very close to the mic. beautiful it's a beautiful way to close off this masterpiece for sure um so and to give that lead the last lead vocal to Ringo Starr I think is kind of lovely yeah and it's yeah. it's such a beautiful vocal yeah. so that is uh, sides three and four of the white <laughs> album uh let's talk about the the cover art oh right uh working yeah. title I, I mentioned earlier was a doll's house uh, after Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen's 1879 play, which I'm not familiar with, yeah. the Beatles decided to change it when British prog group Family released their debut album, Music in a Doll's House, in July of 68. Um, and of course, I mean, the incredible thing, here's a George Harrison quote, the album was originally intended to have a clear see-through sleeve on a clear see-through record. When the record company said they couldn't do that, we decided to have a white record with a white sleeve, but they wouldn't even do that. They'd had red see-throughs when we were in Hamburg in 1859 or 1960. Anyway, a couple of years and 10 minutes later, everybody had psychedelic picture discs with mm. this, that, and the other. So, right. so he was pissed at the record company. Um, incredible, though. It, it was Richard Hamilton, yes, the designer, who came up with the idea. Uh, also, original versions, other than just being a glossy white cover with embossed the Beatles, had a serial number on it, like a fine lithograph. And apparently the Beatles uh, got the first four copies. Yes, One, Ringo two, had the first, I think. He did. Which has since been sold for many, many a dollar, as you can imagine. Ringo's copy. Point. What is it? Zero, 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 yeah. zero, one, or whatever it is. Uh, McCartney says, I think EMI only did this on a few thousand and then just immediately gave up. Okay. Uh, they have very, very strict instructions that every single album that came out, even to this day, should should be numbered. That's the whole idea. I've got number one million. Yeah. Uh, what a great number to have. And uh, what does he says? Um, he talks a little bit about that. Richard... It was Richard Hamilton who had the idea for the numbers. Uh, right. Yeah, and I think they add a good, you know, they add a good element to the artwork. To be honest, because that minimalist, um, minimalist artwork, and then just adding that number really adds. I mean, he couldn't help himself being a collage artist. I suppose Richard Hamilton, he couldn't maybe help himself to add something else in there just to, you know, pop out from that white background. The other thing I love about it is that he just he put the Beatles slightly on an angle so it's not completely horizontal it's just slightly angled 
mm-hmm. which is inspired. It was a gatefold sleeve, mm. which included a poster that you referred to, designed by Hamilton. It's a collage with song lyrics on the reverse. And then you got four photographs, portraits taken by John Kelly. Mm. Uh, the UK version also contained black inner sleeves, which housed the vinyl discs. And the record in the UK came out from the top of the sleeve and not the side right. as per normal. That's yeah. interesting. So if you if you can ever snag yourself a copy on Apple with everything still intact uh, and it coming out from the top with a, the serial number, you've you've got yourself uh, a serious collector's item. Yeah, go get it and then give it to Paul Romanuk. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, I could say that it reminds me of another album that's the cover is mostly white, which is Duke Orleans uh, Duke Ellington's New Orleans Suite which is a beautiful album cover, all white, except for a very kind of grainy pick of Duke Ellington. It's also one of my favorite albums of all time. Um, I think it's just inspired when you can do something that minimal and have it be so timeless, you know, as artwork. I mean, because I think if you are a collage, a collage artist like Richard Hamilton was, your inclination is to just keep layering up and to add more and more. Same goes for when you're mixing a song or something, right? But if you can just pull it back and be... There's something beautiful about minimalism and just being able to pull it back and put only the essentials in there, especially well, in, in contrast to Sgt. Pepper's. In your, uh, in your, uh, your other life, you are a, a, a graphic artist. Uh, Jane, uh, in case you didn't know, Jane is the uh, responsible for the artwork for the Walrus Was Paul podcast. Spectacular that it is, if I do say so myself. Uh, but w- when you look in general at uh, at the Beatles album covers, mm. uh, where does it come down for you on a on a design perspective? Oh, I think they just they they suit the the covers suit the music that's inside them in my opinion i mean except the white album the white album kind of suits it too because of the you it's almost the mystery what's inside if it's so blank on the outside what have we got in there i need to look in there um and uh, this was the first album cover that didn't have all of their photos on the front which is kind of nice too i get a little bit bored from I mean, it, obviously, Sergeant Pepper's, they were all stylized and in those costumes, and it was remarkable, uh, and all the other faces, too. However, I do get sometimes when it's just the artists on the front, I want to see something else. I want to see art, you know, not just photos of the band um, a lot of the time. For example, what Paul Weller did with his with his Style Council album. with the It's, it's a photo of them, but it's just stylized, and it's just so cool, you know, um, but to, to do it this way, to, to take that chance to just put out the White Album um, is is quite remarkable. I love the, and I don't know whether this went into the thought process at all, but, uh, you know, there was a, to be that great, you have to have a fair bit of arrogance. And I just love the arrogance of it where it's, yeah, we did Sgt. Pepper's, which was the most elaborate album cover that had ever been put out on a pop album with the lyrics in the back, unprecedented, uh, you know, gatefold sleeve, lots of color, you know, it, like it was, it was off the charts by 1960s album art standards. And then to come back out with their next long player and just go, ah, we're just going to put out a blank cover with our names embossed on it that you can barely see. Yeah. Screw you. Yeah, screw you. It's our ninth <laughs> album. Yeah. Enjoy. Yeah. 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 Uh, but, you know, the, the remarkable thing is they got all the lyrics printed on the inside, which is what a great service you're doing to your fans. You're giving your fans to have all the lyrics printed. I mean, because I, you know, I'm a lyrics nut, so I would have sat 
on my couch listening, you know, reading those. They must have been printed very small. I can't, I don't actually, I don't, I'd have to look at a copy now to see how small they were printed, but. Uh, I will show you one when we're done. Yeah, please do. When we're done. Yeah. And we are, we are almost done. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, what are your, your final sort of takeaways, thoughts on, uh, by the way, dear listener, that's a, the family dog you can hear wandering around. <laughs> you might have listened to, to Lucky drinking some water recently. That wasn't either of us. Uh, you're, you know, we've been talking about this for an hour and a half. Uh, what's your sort of takeaway from our conversation and the sides three and four of a, an amazing album? I mean, if sides three and four maybe don't get the, the cred they deserve so I'm here to speak on their behalf because it's just a, such a rich album and so much we could probably talk for hours and hours about this album and just go it, it's 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 a deep well this one you know um, very glad they made it I think it still remains one of my favorite Beatles albums um, so thank you for having me and for letting me talk about it a little bit and actually delve into it more myself uh, Lots to learn. Jane, thank you. My pleasure. Great talking to you. Thanks, Paul. So what do you think about sides three and four of the White Album and what we've had to say about it on the show? Let me know. Twitter or Instagram are the best places to interact. Always love to hear your comments and reflections on the show. Uh, That's the best place. You can find me on both channels with the handle the underscore RomyCast. That is the underscore RomyCast. That does it for this episode. You can explore Jane's music, just to remind you, with her band The Real Shade and her latest release with The the Real Statics, Tim Vesley, wherever it is that you stream your music. The band's website is therealshade.com and you can also find them on YouTube and on SoundCloud. Coming up on the next episode, we go off Peaced just a little bit, talking about a Beatles solo record, sort of, with former lowest of the low guitarist and now fronting his own band, Stephen Stanley, as we talk about the Traveling Wilburys. My original thought about this record was that George Harrison had really, you know, brought some A-game to it and some of the other guys maybe not so much. But my opinion about that has completely changed now, having spent a lot of time with it. So, you know, I think there's a there's an interesting study and there's also an interesting, a really interesting look at the recording process when you're with friends doing something you love. That's Stephen Stanley talking about Traveling Wilburys, Volume 1. That's on the next edition of The Walrus Was Paul. I'll talk to you then. Never get tired of being Beatles.